that gun is then auctioned off by the Kentucky State Police. These guns that are used to commit crimes end up back on our streets. And too often, guns that are used to commit crimes are used to commit another crime. That needs to stop. This gun was used by a 17-year-old child in Louisville who attempted to kill another 17-year-old child. Right now, state law forbids us from outright destroying these guns. That's frustrating, disappointing, and dangerous. When we seize drugs in our city, we don't put those drugs back on the street and give them to a different drug dealer. We destroy them. Why don't we do the same thing with guns? I want our city to do our part and permanently destroy illegal guns that have been used to commit crimes once in our city. Once is too many. If I knew that, I would... Uh... Metro TV, we're going to start in one minute. 
Uh, I'll just say 30 seconds, uh, Metro TV, please. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Equities, Community Affairs, Healthy, Housing, Health, and Education. Uh, my name is Stuart Benson. I'm, I'm vice chair of this committee. Uh, Dr. Barbara Shanklin, she's got excused absence, as does uh, Shakori Arthur. Uh, with us today, we got uh, Tammy Hawkins, uh, Andrew Owens, uh, Dan Symes, Jr., uh, and Betsy Rule. Uh, I think, and oh, and Marilyn Parker. Thank you, Marilyn. So today our topic is uh, substantial, sub substance use abuse, uh, addiction awareness. Uh, Gene Gilchrist uh, is with us today. Uh, he, I guess your company, are, is uh, Stay Clean? Yes, sir. Uh, and uh, unless anybody's got any questions right now, I'll let him give us some information that we dire, we really need. So thank you. Benson, thank you, members of the committee. Thank you, uh, those present and, and those online. Uh, my name is Gene Gilchrist. I live in Lake Forest. Uh, my wife and I adopted Louisville as our hometown in 2001. Um, and so uh, I don't think Mr. Piagenti is with us today, but uh, Cheryl's the other Democrat in Lake Forest. Uh, and, and, and we just love the uh, Louisville as our hometown. Uh, I was uh, called here in 2001 to help solve a problem in the University of Louisville. I then uh, was uh, involved with U L Healthcare for, for many years. And recently, uh, Mayor Fisher asked me if I would get involved after the sad passing of Michael White, who some of you knew. And Mike started several addiction recovery activities west of 9th Street, and all four of those are still open. So I was uh, happy to do that. Uh, thank you, Mr. Benson, for mentioning uh, Stay Clean. Uh, I'm not here to ask you for anything for Stay Clean, uh, but I did want you to know what I'm currently doing. Uh, Stay Clean was founded by a uh, colleague in uh, uh, West Louisville. He wanted to bring addiction treatment online, and uh, while I was uh, somewhat skeptical, um, Okay, thank you. While I was somewhat skeptical, nonetheless, uh, today, Stay Clean is a HIPAA-protected telehealth platform for the treatment of addictions. But that's the last I will uh, mention of it, because we're not here to petition you for that. Uh, members of the staff, thank you so very much. I was in your job, or a job like it, uh, admittedly a long time ago in a galaxy far away. Um, but I appreciate your job. Winston Churchill said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others we've tried. Uh, and uh, democracy is messy, and it's not linear, and it is people like you that hold it together. Always in the background. So thank you, and uh, Marissa, you've been very helpful to me getting prepared, so thank you for that. My hope today is to uh, help you understand that you don't fully understand substance abuse in America to define it, to talk a little bit more about what we as a country have tried, and then to make some suggestions. I'm not here to offer you a prescription, uh, but to make some suggestions about how we might proceed. And in terms of seeing what we know and don't know, uh, I'll say a word, and you just hang on to the first image that comes to your mind, okay? Drug addict. 
Well, these are the images, people using intravenous drugs, people on the street, you know, destitute, ill, young, and disproportionately people of color. Alcoholic. These are the images that likely come to mind. Someone passed out in the bar. Uh, uh, someone who is uh, probably living in a shelter and he um, is aged beyond his years. You notice that these people are male and they're predominantly white. Well, the common image is true, but only a small portion of the problem. Housing and Urban Development estimates that there are a little under 600,000 people on the street tonight. Uh, yes, I think that's low too, but this is the official government number. They say that 60 to 70% of them have a substance use problem. Either that's what got them on the street or they developed it after they got on the street. SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, estimates that there are 40.3 million people with a substance use disorder. That isn't just addicts, that's people who are abusing alcohol and drugs. And if those numbers are true, then the common image is about 1% of the problem. But let's say they're all off by half. Now it's 5% of the problem. Now how does that happen? Well, in this country, we value a free press. A free press is a commercial press. A commercial press competes for readers and viewers, and they tend to the dramatic. Nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's a good thing all the way around. Jefferson said, given a choice between a democracy without a free press and a free press without a democracy, I'd take the latter and have hopes for democracy. Nonetheless, here's one of the byproducts. So let's go a couple of other places. What's the most addictive drug in America? It's the hardest to quit. It forms the strongest synapses in the brain, and it kills more, pe kills more people than anybody. Well, the common answer is probably fentanyl or opioids or heroin, all of which are opioids. When uh, the councilwoman is right, it's nicotine. And those of you who have attempted to quit smoking, as I have, uh, know uh, how difficult it is. By the way, it likely won't kill you like alcohol withdrawal might, but it's very, very difficult. And now, having expanded the definition of drugs, here's an alphabetical list. Alcohol, caffeine, marijuana, nicotine, Schedule One narcotics, street drugs, and Schedule Two narcotics, pharmaceuticals that are abused. And for the purists in the room, I recognize that marijuana is, at the moment, a Schedule One narcotic. Which of these kills the most people? Well, I already told you that nicotine kills 468,000 Americans a year. Two of these drugs, there's no evidence that it kills anybody. Of course, one is caffeine. Now, caffeine addiction is real. I, for one, suffer that withdrawal from that for about five minutes every morning, and I suspect some of you do as well. But there's no evidence that it kills anyone. Similarly, there's no pharmacologic evidence that marijuana kills anyone. However, marijuana does exacerbate certain conditions such as uh, uh, anxiety and depression. Marijuana does alter one's reaction time and is estimated to be involved in 13% of the incidence of driving under the influence. Uh, and people who use marijuana on a regular basis, there's estimates that 30% become dependent. But there is no evidence that pharmacologically marijuana kills anyone. That leaves us alcohol and Schedule One and Schedule Two narcotics. Alcohol kills about 98,000 people a year and has done so for a very, very long 
time. Any of you know how many U.S. servicemen and women died in Vietnam? 49,000. About twice as many people have died from alcohol abuse forever than died in the entire U.S. Uh, involvement in Vietnam. And two years ago, for the first time, overdose deaths exceeded alcohol deaths. So we add that up at 673,000 people. What does CDC list as the leading cause of death in America? Heart disease at about 696,000. I think if you could tease out nicotine from the heart disease deaths, I think you could sustain the case that addiction is the leading cause of death in America. This is the Jelinek curve. Many of you have seen this before. Uh, this is uh, developed in the 1940s by Bunky Jelinek, probably not well researched by today's standards, but nonetheless, it has uh, been the basis of much recovery. And in fact, the theory has been that you can't help anybody till they hit bottom. That's where that term came from. But the fact is, there are many, many Americans who are on the curve at the point of use, abuse, and addiction. And there are off-ramps. It is not the case that one has to hit bottom. Here's the data. 40 million people with a substance use disorder. By the way, I, I could sustain any number between 25 and 40 with the evidence. I think mid-30s is probably the right number. But this is SAMHSA's current number. Less than one in five of those people ever touches treatment. There is a dramatic shortage of treatment in the country. And as a result, less than 10% ever achieve recovery defined as one year of continuing abstinence. We'll come back to that in a minute. The cost of the nation is $440 billion. The cost of diabetes is about $420 billion. And it causes 205 deaths annually. And let us not forget codependence. Codependency is a very controversial diagnosis in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual uh, version 5. But you can only love an alcoholic or drug addict, live with an alcoholic or drug addict so long before you change your behavior. And I believe this is a legitimate diagnosis. So if this isn't the problem, who are the people with substance use disorder? Well, they're young. Of many uh, ethnic backgrounds. They're high school and college students. They're young adults. They're young female adults. They're successful business people. And they're people that share my gray hair condition. This is a survey from Narcotics Anonymous. They uh, survey every four years. Now, let's be clear. These are people who have self-diagnosed as being drug addicts. And they're in recovery, some a day, some 10 years. So this is not uh, an average sample. But here's the data. They're 46 years old. Now, they probably were addicts for some time before they got here. So the average age of the addict is probably younger than this. And 60% of them were men. 90% of them had, were gainfully employed. They either had a job, or they were in school, or they were parenting. And 70% of them were white. So the common image that has existed across this country for many, many years as drug issues being something a part of the minority community is just not right. Now, I guess everybody in this room understood that, but the common image is wrong. And so where are the addicts? They're in the cubicle next to you. They're in the pew next to you. They're in the house next to you. 
They're in the golf cart next to you, and they're in your house. This is a widespread problem. We think about homeless folks, and that's true. Our brothers and sisters deserve our attention, but that's 1% of the problem. So here's the reality. There are 80 million people abusing alcohol in this country. Binge drinkers are men who drink more than five drinks in a setting, women who drink four. They are doing that on about three times a year. Heavy drinkers are people, men who drink 14 drinks in a week, women who drink seven. And ladies, you just metabolize alcohol differently than we do. Of course, not case by case, but across gender. Um, and they are doing that by definition every week. There are 59 million people using drugs in this country. 50 of them are using marijuana. Which, by the way, means that only 3% of Americans are doing Schedule One and Schedule Two narcotics. There are 216 family members, and I've belabored that already. And we're passing it on. One in 10 eighth graders has experimented with alcohol and drugs. One in five 10th graders, and one in three 12th graders. Here's the cost. Look at the violent crime, homicides, other violent crime, domestic abuse, sexual assaults, aggravated assaults. Between one in four and six in 10, alcohol or drugs were involved. 15% of robberies, we've talked about the homeless, 1,150 teen overdose deaths. And, and the press is highlighting that, I'm glad they are. Um, adolescent drug use in this country has been declining for 10 years, but it's more fatal than it, than it has ever been and 43% of employees. Now let me talk about that number just a bit. This is our data, we did this work, this is not from someone else. We took the average employee population in this country and we divided it into men and women because we metabolize alcohol differently uh, and we divided it by age. Age 44 is typically when youthful risky behaviors start to decline. And what we found was that on any given day Binge drinkers, heavy drinkers, marijuana users, prescription drug users, 43 out of 100 would be in danger of failing a drug test that included alcohol. Now that doesn't mean they're drunk every day or hungover every day or smoking dope in the car at lunchtime every day. No, it doesn't mean that. But it means they'd be at risk of failing that drug test. And the problem, of course, is not that. The problem is they're operating machines, they're driving your vehicles, they're interacting with your customers, they're fixing your electrical and your, and your plumbing. And no industry is immune. This chart uh, from SAMHSA, again, uh, lists industries in, in order uh, of the incidence of alcohol and drug abuse. And let's take education, which is at the bottom. Four in seven educators are likely to have abused alcohol last month, uh, five and five, to abuse narcotics. Now, these are not mutually exclusive. Likely, there are people in both camps. But if they weren't, that would mean the 10 educators would be in danger of failing this test. That's the bottom. I want to talk a little bit about relapse, and this will lead me to another point. We focus on relapse in drug addiction, as we rightfully should. And here are relapse rates, 51% uh, for alcohol given a two-year period. Look at the relapse in opioids, 54% in a week. That's why the fentanyl problem is as bad as it is. Well, the fact is, this is no different than other chronic diseases. In fact, it's less than hypertension. 
people continue to use salt, asthma, people continue to smoke, and a little bit higher than diabetes, people continue to, to not follow their prescription to eat well. The American Medical Association defined addiction as a disease in 1956. We just haven't caught up. Yes, we should focus on this, but we should look at the facts. It is not uncommon for chronic diseases. So what have we tried as a nation so far? Hopefully you think differently now about alcohol and substance abuse. Well, for 150 years, it was a moral issue. Demon rum, that's where the term came from. There was an, uh, a temperance society on every corner. Uh, it was focused on men because women didn't drink. Um, and uh, the idea was that it was a moral failure. And that resulted in prohibition. Uh, I don't know, do any of you know who this is? This is Carrie Nation. Um, she was the head of the Women's Christians Temperance Union. They used to go into bars with hatchets and chop up, chop up the bar. And of course the men would just vacate. They didn't want to be known as hanging around in the bar at the time. She probably gets too much credit um, for prohibition. Uh, but nonetheless, prohibition uh, was enacted in 1919 and uh, uh, repealed in 1933. In fact, there is ample evidence that the highest point of alcohol consumption in the country on a per capita basis occurred during prohibition. I want to be careful about this one. A stockbroker from Manhattan and a physician from Akron started Alcoholics Anonymous in Akron in 1935. It has been a godsend to millions of people, as has Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Al-Anon, Nar-Anon, and so on. But if less than 10% of the people in this country are in recovery, then this is not a widespread answer. Two million people will attend a 12-step meeting tonight. But let's be careful while supporting that to understand we need broader solutions. Here's everybody's favorite, the war on drugs. The war portion comes out of interdiction. And interdiction is important, and absolutely we should continue it. But folks, all of us who have taken an Econ 101 course or economics in high school know that this isn't a supply problem. This is a demand problem. And as long as there's a demand problem, the supply will be there. Whether it's made in Mexico or in Akron, doesn't really matter. Um, the supply will be there. And unfortunately, it has made criminals out of people with a behavioral health condition. Remember, the American Medical Association says this is a disease. I should say that diversion has worked in many communities. Louisville, I understand, I haven't verified this, but Louisville was successful with diversion very early in the process and is still the case. But we've got to stop criminalizing people with the disease. And then just say no. And I want to be careful. I think Mrs. Reagan and her colleagues were sincere. And I think if you live in Bel Air and you're very well-to-do, this is how you wish the world worked. But it isn't the way the world works. Think to yourselves, please don't raise your hand, how many of us in this room consumed alcohol before we were of legal age? Well, why didn't you just say no? This isn't going to work. We have examples of going at these kinds of problems. Automobile deaths. Uh, several of you in this room are old enough to remember Ralph Nader. I'm still mad with Ralph about Florida in 2000, but that's another story for another time. Um, that's the Corvair, unsafe at any speed. And we took on highway safety. 
We have seat belts in all the cars. We mandate that you use them. We improve the safety of the cars, the safety of the roads, the tires, the lightings. And in my lifetime, our uh, deaths from uh, on the highway have decreased from 55,000 to 36,000, while there are 15% more like trucks and cars out there. And nicotine. The adverse effects of nicotine were discovered by Frank and Francis Bacon in 1750 in Germany. That's not new. But the report to the Surgeon General Luther Terry reminded us of the condition. C. Everett Coop, Coop carried on with that for a very long time. We have warning labels. We have uh, no advertising on TV. We reduce the nicotine content of cigarettes. Uh, and in my lifetime, smoking has decreased from 42% to 14%. Now, as you know, sadly, in Louisville, that, or in Kentucky, that number is still over 20. But nonetheless, we have dramatically reduced it. We know how to do this, is the point. What might we do? Well, here's a list of things we could talk about. I suspect you've heard them all before. Let me talk about just a few of them. Eliminate the stigma. When Uncle Fred has prostate cancer, Nobody whispers behind his back that if he had just a little more moral turpitude, he could say no to prostate cancer. But that's going to happen 10,000 times today or more in America. We've got to eliminate the stigma. Stop the war. Diversion is what we need. Now, there are some people who are and should be incarcerated relative to their behavior, but not for early drug use. Promote recovery. We, we think that abstinence is the exception. In this country, probably 5% of the Americans use illegal drugs. Probably 15% use marijuana. Probably more than 30% of the people in this country don't drink alcohol. And yet, we think abstinence is the exception. Abstinence is the rule. We don't think that. We also think, what a burden. Well, there are people, they're not addicts. They didn't do bad things under the influence, but they have nut allergies. Nobody looks at them at the Christmas party and says, did you notice that Susie wasn't eating the nuts? <laughs> We've got to change this, this, this attitude, and it starts with people like you and me, leadership. Focus on adolescence. I did say that adolescent drug use has been declining for 10 years. The schools are probably doing a good job. It was flat last year, but very much lower than 10 years ago. But these folks don't learn to use alcohol and drugs in school. They learn it at home. We need to focus on parents. We need to arm parents. The average parent in this country, when they worry about their son or daughter doing drugs, isn't well equipped to talk to them about alcohol and drugs. And of course, they exhibit behaviors that, that people emulate. Uh, I have a, a Jewish friend who grew up in a kosher household. And she said when she went to college, the first thing she wanted to get was a bacon cheeseburger. Must be something good about this, right? Well, it, those, those behaviors were reinforced at home. And of course, the bacon cheeseburger might have put a few pounds on, but, but it didn't kill her. We, we, we need to focus on parent and support employers. I showed you a moment ago what damage was being caused. Uh, only one in five employers in this country has a workplace drug policy. The ones who are getting federal money, they're required to have it. 
Let's show them that they can save money. Let's help them. Let's support them. Let's find out ways. And of course, harm reduction. Uh, I dare say that most of the people that come to talk to you about alcohol and drugs talk about harm reduction. But I think if you asked them what it meant, less than a quarter of them could tell you what it meant. Uh, harm reduction is absolutely important. It started in Scandinavian countries with the AIDS crisis. The idea at the time was that most of the transmission was through uh, consensual male sex. And they were trying to get those guys to stop having sex, just stop. And of course, sex being the motivator that it is, that wasn't working. So they turned to harm reduction. And condoms were passed around this country for, for a very long time for free and, and ubiquitously, and, and, and it worked. Now the same thing is being said about abstinence. But let's be careful about what that means. Ten days ago, in the New York Times magazine, there was a discussion about harm reduction centers in East Harlem, where drug use can occur in a protected and safe environment. Narcan is available, and we get people to the hospital. But there was no discussion about promoting recovery. So let's be careful about what we mean about harm reduction. But let me be clear. Um, uh, uh, I absolutely support harm reduction. So, uh, I hope I haven't overstayed my welcome. Let, let me say this. Until we understand the problem, we're not going to solve it. And secondly, smoking reduction, automobile deaths in this country weren't reduced because we flipped one switch. It's because we did a lot of different things and we persisted. And there are a lot of things we can do in this country about alcohol and drug abuse if we choose them, if they're comprehensive, and if we're persistent about that. Mr. Benson, thank you for your time. Thank you to my colleagues in the room and those uh, uh, online. And I'm happy to in, be involved in any discussion you may wish. All right, thanks a lot. Uh, that's pretty interesting and generates a lot of thought. Uh, does anybody here have a question they want to ask Dr. Gilchrist right now? Um, you know, when when you made a, a statement that or that forty three percent or something of people every day on a job is is got a drug problem, that is <laughs> that's a lot, and that is scary. Uh, thinking how many people can get hurt from somebody else doing something that uh, uh, you know. I worked in a, 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 a I spent my apprenticeship program at General Electric as a tool maker and. and uh, and thinking all the people and all the movement parts and things you're making. But your approach of uh, talking about <clears throat> how do you how do you help somebody uh, realize, you know, a person has to make that choice, but how do you present it in a way that they listen and start making that choice? And I, you made a comment earlier that people say you have to go all the way to the bottom before you can ever go up. Uh, that I hate statements that says this is <laughs> this is the only way you do it. I think well, there's got to be some exceptions to the rule somewhere, and 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 if there is, how we do that and how do we? Uh, um, Betsy, I see uh, you got uh, asking a question. May May I comment about Mr. Benson for just a moment? Our, our clinical director says most people don't see the light; most people feel the heat. Right. <laughs> um, 
to be clear, what I said was that 43 of 100 would be in favor of uh, 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 possibly fail the drug test. So those binge drinkers that do that three times a month, they on three days might, might be caught in an alcohol screen. Uh, I think we have to turn it away from uh, punition. That person who smokes dope in their car at lunch probably isn't a drug addict. But they're a person who needs to know that you can't smoke dope in your car at lunch and come in and operate a machine. So let's get to the point where we make it clear to that individual that you're trying to help. And employers can change that through their policies. Sally knows she's drunk. You know Sally's drunk. Sally knows you know she's drunk. Why don't we just have this conversation and help Sally understand? And the first time we do it, chatter will be on the line. Oh, Sally's about to feel the wrath. But when Sally comes back and she had a good experience and she has a, a changed orientation, then that chatter will change. Ma'am. Okay, I'd like to thank you for this presentation. I will be sharing it with my constituents because there's a lot of good information in there that they need to know. You're welcome. And as you spoke to the supply and demand problem, something I've often thought about, all the drugs coming into our country, well, somebody wants them. So what are your suggestions for helping us reduce the demand before somebody gets into um, an abuse problem? I think there are points of intervention in one's behavior. School performance, there's ample evidence about the relationship of alcohol and drug use to school performance, both in elementary, well, secondary school, sadly some elementary, uh, and college. Uh, I think we need to find many more points of entree. The, the spouse, the parent, the son or daughter, the friend, the, past, the, the, the pastor, they know this problem's going on. How do we empower them to intervene before, I mean, the problem's already started or the behaviors wouldn't be exhibited, right? But it doesn't have to get to the point where you hit bottom. So I think the answer to that is a broad-based awareness campaign, like Everett Coop did. Right? like Ralph Nader did. We need to have a broad-based awareness campaign that says, look, this isn't a moral failure. This is, this is a disease, and we've got a solution. And we do have a solution. Treatment works. So I think a broad-based education campaign that helps identify people early in the process before it's late in the process. For those people that we see in the Salvation Army today and our work with them, uh, we can get there much earlier. Do you see any link to mental health issues? The, the data would say that about 50% of the people with an other behavioral health condition will have an alcohol or drug issue, and the obverse is true as well. 50% of the people with an alcohol or drug issue will have an other behavioral health condition, and that's very common. Wow, wow. Uh, Dan Symes, Jr., has got a question. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, how long does it take for a, an average person to, to recover from drug addiction, to where they can handle, where they can function in society? Mm -hmm. the, of course, there's not a bright line there. Um, the many, healing, many places uh, keep people for 28 days. That's clearly not enough. There, there needs to be continuity of care after that, and we don't do enough of that. Um, I was recently diagnosed with very early stage prostate cancer. Uh, and I was treated successfully, and that's wonderful. But they didn't say to me, here's a list of cancer survivors meetings, good luck. 
They said, I'll see you in three months, and I'll see you in six months, and I'll see you in a year. So we need to create better continuity of care. Uh, the Healing Place, which does as good a job as anybody in this country, keeps people for six months, and, and they have much better outcomes. Uh, I, I think that people can start to function right away with good behavior, with, with good support, uh, good, good treatment and good support. And then I think it's a, it's a gradual process. Uh, but I think that people can come back in a supportive environment in a fairly good period of time. And the best evidence we have locally is six months at the healing place. I know that was in direct, Mr. Siam, but I think there's no bright line for that. Yeah, my, uh, my concern is that we don't have enough time for them. We don't give them enough time to recover. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm also concerned, I, I had, uh, I've had several surgeries and they gave me Oxycontin. And on that bottle it said, if you use heavy machinery or if you drive, use caution. It doesn't say don't. It doesn't say uh, uh, stay away from work. It says if you do it, and, and I, I've read the, the label many a times, how do you reconcile that and what the, how does that confuse and is that brought into the workplace as, a, a, as an issue? There, there's evidence that that's where much of the fentanyl abuse begins, uh, is with surgeries and, and so on. Um, and I think that physicians by and large, uh, want to do very best by the patient, and pain management is a very important issue. But as you say, we need to do a much better job with our uh, physician colleagues and the people that work with them, nurses and physicians assistants, to make sure that we know, look, this is a potentially addictive drug. I had another issue, that medical issue, uh, that was very, very serious. It, it was potentially fatal. I survived it. Um, they gave me an anti-anxiety medication after, and I was darn glad to have it. But I also told Mrs. Gilchrist, 30 days from now, we're going to wean ourselves off of this. And if not, here's a number to call. We don't do enough of that. The, the, I'm, I'm sorry there isn't a physician colleague with us here today, but I think they would tell us that they don't get adequate training about substance use and abuse. Uh, I think that Dr. Ganzel and her colleagues have been introducing that at U of L. We've got to do a much better job, Mr. Syme. You're absolutely right about that behavior. This is a narcotic. It is potentially addictive, and you need to attend to that. You need to see me and fill in the blank 30 days, and we're going to talk about that. One more, one more thing I wanted to ask you about: um, cannabis used in uh, to treat PTSD. My father was 82 years old, had colon cancer, and he threw his Oxycontin away, and he was on the Senate floor and said he used cannabis, and it helped him. How do you reconcile that when you've perpetuated the, the story that cannabis is a drug and that it's in the Schedule One and should be demonized when it's, you, and it's, when it's legal in so many other states and it's helping um, with the people with cancer and PTSD? How do we reconcile that in your, in your line of work? Mm -hmm. uh, if I demonize cancer, I, I overstated it, or uh, uh, cannabis, I overstated it. I did not mean to do so. Um, I think that medical cannabis is absolutely something we should be looking at and doing, and it's being done all over the country, and I think it's, I think it's a good approach 
to pain treatment. Uh, by and large, cannabis is not addictive. That's what the evidence would say. Uh, some dependence often occurs. It does influence anxiety and depression, but it is a, a, a very good alternative for some folks for uh, pain management. So if I, if I demonize it, as you say, uh, my apologies. That was not my intent. Andrew or uh, Marilyn or, or Pam, do you all have any questions? Y'all, Andrew? Um, I had a quick question about um, for-profit and non-profit uh, organizations that help people with substance abuse. Um, it, I tend to be more, lean more toward the, the ones that are in it for not for a profit. Um, I, what is your kind of take on, on for-profit um, organizations that help people with substance abuse and, and how that, you know, how funding and, and other things kind of can affect, you know, getting people quality treatment? Historically, uh, behavioral health treatment has been nonprofit, and I think that tradition is out there. Stay Clean is for-profit. Uh, we, we believe that that is a sustainable model. I think there are ample examples of uh, nonprofits that get involved in ways they shouldn't, Medicaid abuse, for example. Uh, I think there are ample examples of upselling, better help was uh, approached by the SEC in the last 18 months about upselling. So I think we need regulation, but, but my view is there are plenty of very good uh, nonprofits. We have our for-profits, we have some in this town, um, and with the right motivation, the right mission, and regulation, I think for-profit uh, for organizations can make a difference in this environment. Uh, Dr. Gilchrist, I, there's a, a question I, you know, we was talking about the uh, people who use substance and stuff. Would, you know, do we in the United States, I mean, I think, and I might be wrong, there's more ADD and uh, attention deficit problems and stuff in the United States than in a lot of places. And, and for me, I've always thought you had to get up and leave someplace to go do something. And, and, and most of the people in America who came here, they wanted to do something or be something. My grandfather left Sweden. He wanted to be a farmer. He wasn't the oldest and 38 years old with four kids, the way he comes. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and I've watched people a lot, men more than anybody, uh, attention deficit problem. Uh, I have attention deficit. Uh, I got to really work hard <laughs> to focus so that I don't, you know, screw up. You know, if I'm working on a job, it's real easy. I'm, I'm liable to scrap it. But it's really hard, really close tolerances. I do well because I can focus better. Uh, and and I, I don't know if people who, who uh, sometimes uh, have drug problems, is it they're, they're, they're anxious and they want to, I don't know. Um, so I've tried to watch different people who's had some problems is there a relation to their, their, their makeup of who they are that causes them more sustainable, uh, attempted to, to maybe do drugs and have trouble even getting off drugs? Because the, I, I know somebody, you know, one time when I first got on the council, I was really struggling with all the ordinances. And uh, the doctor prescribed me Adderall. It didn't affect me at all. 
And people say, well, that's a substance, and that really affects a lot of people. It affects people who don't have ADD. <laughs> the other people, <laughs> like me, it didn't, it, well, it, it didn't help me. And so, like, you're, like you said, all drugs don't affect everybody the same way. And, and so, but we always try to fix everything the same way for everybody. And, and, uh, um, and I, you know, so I don't know if there's, if, if you found that there was something in the uh, different person's makeup, how that caused them, one person to be more susceptible to doing drugs than, than another. The, the genetic links are very clear, uh, that there's a genetic basis to addiction, that one person will process a drug um, and uh, one person will get out the wine bottle and pour one glass for the night and put it back. And the next person will finish that whole bottle and whatever else is in the house. Uh, there, there, there is a genetic link. There's no question about that. Uh, there's also uh, clear evidence about adverse childhood events, uh, what's happening in the homes, sexual assault and so on. We think about sexual assault as occurring just to women. That's not true. Uh, adverse childhood events are, are a, a, a major cause. Um, there's also evidence that we process drugs differently. Part of the uh, human genome proje uh, project identified that. 80% uh, of the most frequently prescribed uh, pharmaceuticals in this country uh, can now be dosed. Of course, we don't want to do that. That would be pretty expensive, right? So we, we don't do that. And, and so people would be more likely to uh, become addicted than others. Back to Mr. Syme's question, which I think is very, very important. Uh, we have to better supervise people um, who have those kinds of, uh, those kinds of drugs. Uh, I won't wade into attention deficit. It's well beyond my ken and training. Um, but I, I think anybody who is prescribed a pharmaceutical that is potentially addictive uh, sh should be monitored for some period of time. Wow. Very interesting. I, there's enough. Marilyn, do you have anything you... I don't know if she can hear me. Uh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry, Dan. I, I should look I at my monitor. One more question. What's the difference between a caffeine addict and a heroin addict and a nicotine addict? What's the <laughs> difference between these addicts? Well, um, I, I want to be careful not to get beyond my, my training, but I would say this. Uh, caffeine is not a mind-altering substance. It is a mood-altering substance. There's not a mind-altering substance. Nicotine, by and large, is not a mind-altering substance. They're both addictive. Caffeine, far less so. Um, it's far easier to quit. You've probably been to the doctor where you had to give fluids in order to get tests, and you had, if, if you drink coffee in the morning every day, you had that headache. But you, you didn't have to go knock over at Starbucks in, in order to solve that problem, right? Um, with opioids, the drug becomes more and more addictive. You, you are not in control any longer. You, you need to do it. And it is a mind-altering substance. Uh, and because it's illegal, you then start to do things in order to get that drug that are illegal and then start to lead down that road. I hope that is in the spirit of what you asked. Did you have something different in mind, Mr. Syme? Uh, All right. <laughs> Well, uh, it's been very interesting. I wished uh, uh, we had more questions to ask you because, uh, uh, to me, uh, the easiest way to learn is listen to somebody who knows something. <laughs> it's easier sometimes than for me than to read a book. 
because I can uh, I seem like I can I can focus on on their uh, their body language and stuff as they're delivering the information to me um, but everybody's different um, so unless anybody's got any other questions um, uh, this is a this is a important subject for our, our community or for the whole whole, uh, whole country uh, to keep people to be in control of themselves so that they they don't uh, mess up or cause other people's problems I mean you know when I was reading it talk about nicotine you know being harmful you know I mean not being the most addictive drug uh, or uh, what was it it wasn't anyway but most people, they're not going to kill anybody <laughs> smoking a cigarette. But uh, the other stuff that gets a hold of them and doesn't let loose. And since we aren't all that smart, we always want to go after a blame and, and uh, try to uh, go after the person saying, you, you can do better than this, you know, instead of give them some kind of stepladder to try to work their way up and, and a support system that would, uh, I, I think that's why Alcohol Anonymous and all them are with the 12-step uh, program, uh, how they're successful because they got somebody's got somebody to lean on when they're getting ready to be uh, uh, tempted to do something maybe they wish they hadn't, and they call their sponsor or whoever and says, "I'm really really having trouble," and the person says, oh, "I'm glad you called," and they'll talk them, and, and all of a sudden they get over the anxiety. They still may have the urge, but they got over that and they they move on and they build. Uh, days of uh, of uh, sobriety and uh, and I guess same way with uh, people on drugs they do, but I don't know if if, if um, seems like to me the people who do the drugs uh, have a harder time to back off than the people who are alcoholics. But uh, I don't know. I've I've known a lot of alcoholics and and uh, seen them you know, make the transformation. Looks like they made an easier transformation than some of the people I've seen with drugs. They just, uh, they start stealing things. They start, you know, they just, the, the habit is so hard for them. They just, they can't, and if, and they need, they really need support. Well, and you're right, 28 days I showed you is not with, enough. The relapse rates I showed you a little while ago would support that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Thank you all very much, and I appreciate this opportunity. Thanks for coming in. No, you're most welcome, and thank you for having me. Uh, it's great. Uh, motion to adjourn. Thank you very much.